Hello, I'm Eddie Temple-Morris. And I'm Nick Hawkes. Nice to have you with us. Uh, you're about to hear episode eight of Trailblazers, and this is uh, a real special one. This is with Tony Prince, who you think you might not know, but he's in with Daniel Miller or Mike Pickering, uh, past guests that we've had that, um, you know, you, you think that aren't that big, but actually when you delve into them via Trailblazers, you realise, oh my God, this person is absolutely massive though they might not at first appear as big as Gary Newman or Norman Cook, who we've had before. So Tony Prince is one of those characters that everybody listening to this will have interface with Tony in some way through his starting Mix Mag or through the DMC uh, championships. I mean, this talk about someone who is uh, in the culture, woven into the culture of dance. This is that man. Well, absolutely. I, I used to listen to Tony Prince on the radio as a, as a kid, barely into my teens when he was on Radio Luxembourg playing playing dance music. And, and that was certainly some of my first exposure to to uh, to dance music really so there was, there was a beautiful moment actually when we recorded this when uh, when when nick in front of me just don't, pulled don't, out don't don't give it all away though don't <laughs> oh, give it away okay. let, let them all listen right. Eddie. all right then okay right. then you'll got... have to you'll have to hear it <laughs> and um before we get started a reminder that you hear a lot of great music in this show but it's all kind of a, a taster really of of the music that played a key role in in tony's development if you want to listen to the tracks in full deezer.com is where you go and and you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists there from Eddie and myself and our guests. So let's begin. Deezer Originals Trailblazers Tony Prince Welcome, dear friends, to another episode of Trailblazers. My name is Eddie Temple-Morris and by my side, as ever, XL Recordings and Positiva Records founder Nick Hawks. Together, each time, we light a warm and friendly fire and invite another dance music legend like Nick to chat to us by the fireside to talk about the cultural fires they started and to play some of the tunes that soundtrack their fascinating lives. This week's Firestarter is a former radio DJ on the legendary Radio Luxembourg for 16 years who got to hang out with Elvis Presley, partied with Led Zepp, so if you have any questions about the world's greatest rock band, Eight Beautiful Girls and a Ring-Tailed Octopus, ask him whether they're true because he was probably there. Then he set up the Disco Mixing Championships to showcase and celebrate the art of the DJ before the cult of DJ ever existed. This quickly became a focal point for hip-hop and breakbeat turntable wizardry and outgrew its disco roots to evolve into the DMCs that we all know and love, turning him into the undeniable godfather of turntablism in the UK. Tony Prince, welcome to Trailblazers. Oh, I can't live that one down. That's just too much. Yeah. You could just get your coat now. Yeah, I think yeah, just... I'm acutely embarrassed and I love every minute of it. <laughs> Excellent. Flattery gets us everywhere. Yeah. Well, let me, uh, so welcome to Trailblazers. Yeah. Let, me, let me hand over to Nick, as I always do, to fire the first salvo. Great. Okay, Mr. Firestarter, fire! <laughs> well, Tony, great to, to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So with such a rich history... What do you make of the the shape of the music industry today? When you look at what's going on, um, what do you think? What do you make of it? Oh, you know, it'd be easy to criticise the overpopulation of music and the mm. far too many ways of getting to your music. Yep. It's kind of diluted the impact of making massive hits and massive artists. Mm. Much more difficult now, although people like Simon Cowell have mm. found one way of doing it. Mm. But back in the day when I was like working radio, you could be guaranteed we had 100 million listeners 
a week all over Britain and greater Europe. Mm. The Iron Curtain, Scandinavia, they all listened to Radio Luxembourg. Mm -hmm. And that meant that when you were listening to Elvis in Norway, they were listening to it in Edinburgh at exactly the same time because there were no other sources for music at night. Mm. The BBC's uh, output of pop music was very limited because the Musicians' Union, you've heard that expression, uh, needle time restrictions. I have, yeah. Well, that was imparted on them by the Musicians' Union. Mm. I'll get into it later, but mm. the Musicians' Union threw me out because of mm. playing records in ballrooms. So, um, so, so has, it, has the scene, you know, is it better? Is it worse? Is it, is it, or is it just different? Do you know, be careful what you wish for. Because uh, when we were out on Radio Caroline and the pirate ships around Great Britain in 1965, 6 and 7, we wanted a bigger radio network. The right. reason the pirates were out there was because there was nothing in the daytime, you know, it was like, uh, you know, an oasis with no water. Yeah, yeah. And then at night, the water started dripping from a yes. station in the centre of Europe, Radio Luxembourg. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, be careful what you wish for, because mm. we've got far more than we wish for. Do you think we've got too much music Don't know about slush, that. slushing around now? Uh, no, I no? think the great thing is a lot more people are able to make music now. Yeah. Not just artists, you know. They can go on a computer and pick up stuff. They don't have to learn a guitar or the piano, um, although I do recommend that. Yeah, it does help. <laughs> but they can make music now. And, uh, you know, as for radio, you know, everybody's got a radio station if they want to have one online. You they know, have. Their, their uh, Facebook and their iTunes and God knows what. So so does that mean that fundamentally the, the, the original role of radio is has been I think radio, obliterated? I think radio's in big trouble. I think the, 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 the thing that radio's done that it shouldn't have done, it's dumbed down the DJ. We used to have vivacious personalities, fast-moving wheelers and dealers, lots yeah. of jingles, yeah. excitement, mm. Kenny Everett, mm. the Emperor Roscoe, hey, buddy, how are you doing out there? It was, it was really interesting. <laughs> yeah, they were larger than life, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, and they made people want to be a DJ, not only listen to them, you know. Yeah. Uh, and the, uh, the radio stations learned very quickly that the best way to get mega audiences was to play the big hits. Mm. So they started honing down their playlists to about 20 records, and they were all the cream of the crop that week. Mm. Uh, And the DJs were told, look, you've got 30 seconds to talk and do that jingle. We want you to be really tight now. And in those circumstances, it's very difficult for the DJ to bring out his personality if he's got Mm. any, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a big mistake on radio's part. And I've been saying recently, maybe that is going to be the saviour for radio if they allow the personality back through. Why else would a kid who's got music streaming all over his world Mm. come to a radio station? Mm. He's got that music everywhere else. So personality is what's It will come to listen to somebody likes or she likes. Uh, Gosh, do you think it might even swing back, like, to what it was in that heyday where... Might do. They might start listening to your blog. (laughs) <laughs> well, hopefully somebody's hopefully he's going to listen. Somebody's going to listen to us. I'm sure my mum has told me that she promises that she will. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we should draw I, the line between between speech radio and music radio. And you know, when we were talking about this 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 massive decline and, and less relevance, it, we're talking about music radio because mm. you know Radio Four still kicks ass in yeah. its own way. Yeah. I'm on and, Radio uh, Four tomorrow morning. Actually, oh, yeah, eight thirty to ten thirty. It's too late. Your blog won't have gone out by the time no. it happens. But I've been invited on to Saturday Live, which is 
a big thrill for me because I was blocked by the BBC for years. You know, I wanted to be on the BBC like everyone else. Mm. For some reason, I never did get on. But recently, with my book, I've got a book out, which yeah. we'll talk about yeah, later. Absolutely. Uh, they've invited me in to talk about it. And one of the things I did on Radio Luxembourg, and everybody knows this, I broke the Osmonds in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. I'd been out to Las Vegas and met them, interviewed them all, and set them up for their arrival at Heathrow with an interview every night leading down to their arrival. Okay. And uh, on this uh, program on Radio 4, the other guest is Jimmy Osmond. Ah. Uh, so we know each other real well. I'm okay. looking forward to that. By the time this blog goes out, that will be history. It will. Uh, but it, for me, it's kind of like a big moment to be welcomed in to Broadcasting House. Great. Well, great. No, that's. I'll, I'll look forward to uh, to checking that out. So look, let's. Should we rewind? Yeah, and let's try and yeah. get back to the the beginning of the journey. Yeah, let's yeah. let's rewind the clock right back to your your first memory, really, of music, or what was the the tune or the artist that really pulled you in and made you think that really affected you on an emotional level. Okay, well, I was born in the north of England in a tourist house environment, rather like Coronation Street. On Saturday nights, my mum and dad must have been party people. So it's genetic for me. And where was this? This was in Oldham, Lancashire. Uh-huh. And they went to the pub every night of their life. And I was an only child and uh, it was tough, I can tell you. I never, ever sat down and watched telly with my parents. But on Saturday nights, I'd stay awake and hear the clinking of bottles as they came up St. Stephen's Street with all their buddies. And they came to our house. The pubs closed at 10.30 in those days. So they all came to our house with bottles of beer, crates of beer, bottles of gin. And they'd settle down in... In our little living room and they'd put a radiogram on now in those days the music was very much frank sinatra big bands uh, i wasn't particularly enamored with that but they loved it and then suddenly the radiogram would go off and they'd all start singing one at a time they had to sing a song you know caramia mine <laughs> uncle john you know and then frank would sing I'll take you home again, Kathleen, to my mother who was called Kathleen. And I'd sit there uh, just loving the atmosphere in this smoky room with this incredible uh, love for music. Uh, But that didn't impregnate me. It was Elvis Presley who impregnated me as far as music's concerned. And a guy called George Brawley who lived a street down from my street and he had a Dansetti record player. This was one of those that you could put eight records on and put Mm. the arm over and they dropped down one at a time. And if you really liked the record you just put one on and you make the arm stay there so it just keep automatically starting again and again yeah and we did that with elvis presley you know heartbreak hotel and then his first album which was absolutely magnificent but i've got to say the one record that really made me uh, sit up and uh, my eyes pop my feet dance was elvis singing blue suede shoes trailblazers tony prince well it's one for the money for the show, three to get ready now. Go get going, but don't you step on my blue suede shoes. Well, you can do anything, but it's all for my blue suede shoes. Well, you can knock me down, step in my face, slam my name all over the place. I'll do anything that you want to do, but I, I, honey, lay off of my shoes. Don't you step on my blue suede shoes. Gosh, that still sounds so... Uh... Where, where, where did he get that from, you know? If you look through the history of music, you know, before Elvis, you had the blues, you had country and western rockabilly, 
Rockabilly was kind of influential. But the way he interpreted it, you know, he went on television and they wouldn't film him from the waist down because he was so cool. Yeah, it was dangerous. It he, was, he was considered to be moving, dangerous. You know, yeah. and it was too sexual for the generation who were watching him. And that just endeared him more to us, you know. Absolutely. And we all got in front of our mum and dad's dressing table mirroring in their bedroom when they weren't at home. And we put brill cream on our hair and make front of our hair into a quiff, you know. <laughs> and, you know, we'd turn our shirt collars up. And we'd try and do what Elvis did. We'd have the record on and we'd be miming. And he was one massive influence. It was John Lennon who said before Elvis Presley, there was nothing. Yeah, in terms of youth culture, you're right. You know, and, and, and Elvis embodied that, that danger yeah. that I think is missing in you know, youth culture icons right now. And that is, you know, yeah. the, and, the, and the, the conservative government called repetitive beats dangerous in exactly the same way, but decades and decades later. But, you know, there was somebody before Elvis, but he wasn't iconic like Elvis. It was blue. It was uh, uh, Rock Around the Clock. Bill Haley in the comments yeah. Yeah. came through a big movie at the time, mm. you know, and kids used to go to watch this movie and they'd break up seats in the cinema. And that was the arrival of the Teddy Boys. And yes. yeah, that was uh, that was uh, the birth of a teenage revolution, really. So, Tony, what did having been inspired by Elvis Presley and, and frankly, who of your age wouldn't have been? Um, what did you then do with that inspiration? Well, you know, um, it, it was going to Butlin's Patheli on holiday. I went five years in a row, first with my mum and dad, and then I started going with my mates. So it was the late 50s when I ran into wanting to get on that dance floor and dance and listen to music. Uh, and the, the Butlin's Patheli had a place called the Rock and Calypso Ballroom. But after two years, it became the Rock and Jive Ballroom mm. because that type of music, Elvis and Ray Charles, what did I say? Yeah. Uh, all that kind of music had arrived. And when a track went on, there was no DJs. It was like a jukebox environment, but they did have a live band. Uh, and I, I'll come to a track now that I can listen to it a million more times. And every time I hear it, I'm in the rock and jive ballroom. It's one incredible record. It also launched the career of Armit Ertegun, who went on to start mm. Atlantic Records. Mm, mm. And he eventually signed this guy to Atlantic Records, but he wasn't with them now. I think he was with, with London at this time. Mm, mm. But what a great record. It was the perfect record to jive to. It was Bobby Darin and Dream Lover. Trailblazers, Tony Prince. Every night I hope and pray A dream lover will come my way A girl to hold in my arms And know the magic of her charms Cause I want a girl to call my own I want a dream lover So I don't have to dream alone Bobby Darren, dream lover, as chosen by Tony Prince, whose life we are sound tracking <laughs> here on Trailblazers. Right. So, so where did we go to? Uh, where do we go to next? Let's yeah, stay in Butlin's Patheli for a minute, shall we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like, I walk in one afternoon, and there's a guy sat there, and he's he's polishing his boots. He's got a pair of cowboy boots, and he's polishing them. These boots look really cool. So I get myself a milkshake. I'd never had alcohol in my life at that time. I was probably about 16 or something. And I go and sit down. I plonk myself down next to him and start talking to him, you know, and he's listening rather than talking back to me. And I'm saying how much I like the group he's in. He's in the resident group at Butlin's. And I said how much I, I like music and I know all the lyrics. And he said, well, if you... Um if you know all the lyrics, lad, why don't you get up and uh, sing with us tomorrow night? We've got a talent competition. Oh, I said, well, I will do if you'll lend me a pair of your boots. <laughs> I, 
that it was Ringo Starr. Yes, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and, and did he lend you his boots? <laughs> the group was Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. Yeah, right. Wow. That okay. was before he joined the Beatles. Yeah, actually, the Beatles nicked uh, nicked um, Ringo from Rory Storm. But there you go. My mates and I, they said you've got to go in for this talent competition. I decided to sing Gene Vincent's Bebop Lulu, and. Um, <laughs> on the night, my mates threw a couple of whiskeys down my neck to give me Dutch courage yeah. Yeah. for drinking my life. <laughs> and uh, I'm side of stage now, right? And uh, Rory Storms introduced one person. Then he comes over to me and Ringo's looking at me. He points his drumsticks to the side of the stage. Got a pair of cowboy boots there. <laughs> So he's he's brought them for me, you see. <laughs> oh, fantastic! Pays to be cheeky, doesn't it? Sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was cheeky, you know. I was a cheeky chappy. Yeah. And uh, Rory Storm says to me, "What key?" I said, "Well, he said what song?" I said, "Bebopalulu." Gene Vincent's Bebopalulu. He said, "What key?" And I said, "Well, I'm in row four, uh, number twenty-three." <laughs> no, 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 no. What key for your chalet? What key are you singing? It to? <laughs> I presume you I didn't knew, have a clue. I knew nothing about keys. <laughs> I said, "You choose it, Rory. I don't mind." <laughs> that was the whiskey talking. You know. He said, "We'll do it in C." Okay, I says, "I'll go and put the cowboy boots on." All right. So Rory introduced me. Tommy. I was Tommy then. I wasn't Tony. Here's Tommy from Oldham. He's going to sing Bebop. Well, Bebop a Lulu and the band starts playing. Now, Gene Vincent in those days he was a great rock and roll man. And he, he got to the middle eight and the microphone would be stand would be at 45 degrees from his body. Yeah. And when he got to the middle eight, he'd, he'd look at the lead guitar and say, go. And he'd kick his right leg up and put it over the mic and finish up with the mic stand behind his back, swaying in rhythm with the the group and it was a fabulous trick and I practiced this with broomsticks in my mum and dad's bedding, bedroom mm, so mm, many times mm. I'm, I'm going to do it right I'm going to really <laughs> blow this audience away so we get to the middle eight and I, and I point to Johnny Guitar he was called the lead guitar go Johnny and I kick my leg up and the boot came flying off, <laughs> landed on the head of a teddy boy. I didn't get my leg over the mic stand and I fell off the bloody stage <laughs> with the mic booming everywhere. Oh, well, the no. band couldn't play. The band couldn't play. Uh, Ringo's head hit the side drum. Johnny Guitar fell on the floor. Rory Storm's crying with laughter and so are the audience. <laughs> and this was the first time in my life I'd seen an audience who liked something I'd done. Uh -huh. And it really is... Addictive. So you it's got that, that was your first buzz of the crowd. Yeah, it wasn't was, like a standing ovation or anything like that, but I made them all laugh and cheer. Well, that's yeah. it. A reaction is a reaction, Tony. Yeah. That is it. And so then you, what happened? My life changed there and then. A bunch of guys came over to me. We're from Oldham. We're just forming a group. Would you like to be our singer? I said, well, if you're that mad, why not? So before you cocked up your, your, your microphone move, you, were, you must have been singing all right. You must have been. I must right. have been, yeah. <laughs> your game yeah. must have been strong. Yeah, I, I wasn't bad, you know. <laughs> I, yeah, I, you can hold the tune. I, well, I sang with them for two years after that, doing all the hits of the day, you know. Um, and unfortunately, we got offered a season at Butlins and the boys, the group was called the Jasons. Uh, and we became pretty popular. We chopped the bill on Engelbert Humperdinck on one occasion. <laughs> which which he, was a big he, thing. He was called mm. Jerry Dorsey then, though. Mm. But anyway, we don't want to talk about Engelbert Humperdinck. Um, it was just such a great life. But I wasn't doing it full time. I was an apprentice toolmaker in oily overalls during the day. Mm. And at night, I'd put on the uh, gold lime suit and 
I become a mini Elvis Presley. And, did you actually have a gold lamb? I did. Suit? Yeah, I had one made just like Elvis's gold. Have you got one? I want one. <laughs> I want a Tony's one. Festival season. Yeah. Yeah. Secret, yeah. Garden, secret garden party. That's yeah. absolutely perfect. Yeah. So, so Tony, did you tell your 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 oily workmates about your secret second life? There's or? no secret about it. You know, so you, well, you I were, sang all day in the, oh, in the okay. factory. You so know, loud and yeah, proud. They loved it. There was a guy who used to sing opera, and I'd sing rock and roll. We were competitive. <laughs> <laughs> Different generations but anyway um two years went by and we, we were such a great and formidable group really i've got to say i wasn't the only singer there was another guy who sang as well but it was a really tight unit and we were offered a season at butlins so i could turn professional back in the engineering but none of the other boys would one wanted to stay a plumber one wanted to stay uh, an accountant and the other one worked for the fire brigade and they weren't going to pack in their day jobs for a season at Butlins. Right. So I packed in the group. I said, I'm out of here. I'm going to go solo. So for a little while, I did like the clubs of Manchester as a solo singer. I played a bit of rhythm guitar at that point. And then one night, a new ballroom opened in Oldham. They weren't called clubs yet. They were called discotheques, the small ones. But the big ones, the meccas and the top ranks, were still called ballrooms. And they were opening a new one in my hometown called the Top Rank Astoria. And I went down there and I'm stood at the bar and this guy comes over who I knew from a residence that we'd had at another ballroom, Johnny Francis. And he says, what are you doing, Tommy? And I said, I'm, I've gone solo. The Jasons have broke up. They wouldn't turn professional. He said, I'm looking for a male vocalist. He's got a 15-piece orchestra behind us, right? And he wants me to be his singer. <laughs> there was no hesitation. The next day I went into work and handed in my notice. <laughs> I burned my overalls and I walked out a free man. <laughs> I bet, I bet <laughs> they caught fire very easily. <laughs> yeah. So now I'm getting paid a proper wage. I'm singing with a 15-piece band. I didn't like singing with them as much as I like singing with the Jasons. I've mm. never really got on well with people who read the, read the notes. Mm. To me, it's too conservative. It's too perfect. Mm. Yeah. Whereas rock and roll, playing a few wrong notes on the guitars, the drummer messing up every now and then, there's something more raunchy about a live It's more human, group. isn't it? It's more human, yeah. isn't it? You know, yeah. you talked about radio you know, becoming yeah. increasingly less human, and, yeah. and, and that's what it is. It's people like humanity. I think humans like humanity, don't they? I yeah. certainly do. yeah. It's just a better sound as well, a group from from an orchestra. I mean, you listen to all those Frank Sinatra records, the the the, the lush backing. I find that very boring. Mm. I can appreciate what a great vocalist he is, and Tony Bennett and people like that. But I'm not drawn to them like I'm drawn to people like Elvis. And even early Cliff Richard did some great rock and roll. You know. Mm -hmm. So there we are. I'm now a professional. Then one night. The DJ who'd been giving us a break, you know, every 15-piece band has got to have half an hour at the bar every night. And this guy who'd been playing the records, he never spoke in the mic. He just played records and he looked a bit of a geek. You know, he had mm. glasses on in short back and sides haircut and he hadn't shown up. So the manager came up to me and says, uh, I'm still Tommy, by the way. Mm. Tommy, would you like to stand in for him? I'll give you another £2 a night. You're not kidding, of course I would. So now I'm rich. Not only am I rich, I'm singing with a 15-piece band and I'm playing all the music I love and mm. making that floor fill. Mm. And um, so I became a DJ and within months we got moved down to Bristol to another new ballroom. Mm. And that's when the Musicians' Union came to see us to make sure all the musicians were getting the right kind of wages and, mm. and uh, terms. Mm. And the secretary came to me and he said, you're playing records all day. I mean, this ballroom in Bristol, I was doing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, lunchtime. 
sessions at night, different kinds of sessions, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening, and Sunday club. The only night I got off was on Wednesday because it was a private function when they didn't have a private function. So I was working every hour God gave me, but I loved it, I loved it, I loved it. I just couldn't get a better lifestyle, you know. Well, I mean, the idea of a, a club that's open Monday to Friday every lunchtime is, is pretty interesting. That's, that's precursor to Ibiza. Well, yeah. It, actually, it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't it, Don't forget the cabin used to do that in Liverpool. Did yeah, they? they opened but, at lunchtime? Every lunchtime, yeah. But that's why you're here, yeah. Tony, ahead of yeah. the curve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but we're Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, we were in Bristol. The secretary came to see me. He said, I'll get you more money. You should be getting more than this. Yeah. Two weeks later, I get a letter back saying it's been brought to my attention. You're breaking union rules. Keep music live. Records are putting our members out of work because before records, when the band had a break, a trio played live music. Yeah. That's. Obviously. It was just libel. And night. I always thought that maybe top ranking Mecca wanted records because it was cheaper than trios, mm. but that wasn't the case. Mm. Gary Brown, who ran top rank, told me years later, no, it wasn't to save money on trios, Tony. He said it was because the people wanted the records. Yeah. You saw how the floor filled when you came round on that revolving stage and the yep. band went off. Mm. They'd cheer me as I came round with the records. When I'd finished my set and went round, the big band came round, they'd boo the big band. It was terribly <laughs> embarrassing. Oh, that's uncomfortable. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. that was it. Um, I was used as a test case in Bristol. Yeah. Top Rank used me as a test case. We had a big union meeting and there were about 110 musicians there. Yeah. We all put our cases forward and the case I put forward was, listen, DJs don't necessarily know how to play chords. They can't play drums. But I promise you, in their soul, they are musicians. Mm. I think you should embrace DJs into the union. Mm. How else are you going to control how much music they play? Mm. If you uh, divorce yourself from the DJ industry, you're going to create one hell of a problem. So it was voted. I mean, top rank said, you know, the danger is if you throw Tony out of the union, you're going to uh, look forward to the band losing certain nights, uh, the big band being put down to a 10-piece. This is all coming if you don't control the DJs. But they voted, and they were all musicians in that room, and 100 to 10 voted for me to leave the union. And they were sympathetic and said, if you ever want to rejoin the union, a £50 fine will do it. Mm. I said, I don't somehow think I'll ever be rejoining the MU. Mm. And I didn't. Mm. Wow, you talked about you know, the, the, the business of DJing and, and their, their relationship with the business of DJing. And, and I joked about you being ahead of the curve in another context. But how ahead of the curve were you? There wasn't a business of DJing then. Because everything was jukeboxes, wasn't it? So you literally yeah. were one of the, you, you were one of the very first DJs in the UK. Of course I was. I wasn't one of the first radio DJs because you had Alan Freeman, Pete Murray, Jimmy Savile, Sam Costa, people like that, real icon DJs. Not one of them who set out in life to be a DJ. They set out uh, to be actors or something. Mm. Yeah. Savile was a manager of a ballroom. Um, you know, so that you had Radio Luxembourg and just very little music on the BBC. And it was called the Light Programme in those days. Yes. What is now Radio 1 was the Light Programme. How could they call a station the Light Programme? Why didn't they go all the way and call it a Lightweight Programme? You know, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, um, where were we? We were we were DJing. Uh, I'd been thrown out of the union, and I got on a TV show. Uh, there was a show in Bristol called Discs A Go Go, 
which was commentated on by Kent Walton, a DJ Canadian guy, who used to do wrestling commentary on Saturday and just a go-go on Wednesday night. And what and year are we in now, Tony? Uh, you're in now 1960... I just remembered something I didn't tell you. We're in 64. And two years earlier, before I came down to Bristol from the top rank in Oldham, I had an amazing night. I told the manager which groups to book into the Oldham top rank, and I told him to book the Beatles on the strength of Love Me Do. And the night they arrived at the Oldham top rank was the birth of Beatlemania, because Please Please Me went to number one right. on the NME chart that night. McCartney in my dressing room showed everyone a telegram from the NME. So I was there at the birth of the Beatles, really, as well, which is wow. something, you know. Wow. Uh, but now back to Bristol. Did, did Ringo remember the flying boot he incident? Did. He did, yeah. He, he did. did. Yeah. I interviewed him a couple of times and okay. he always took the mickey out of me. Okay. It, you know. Yeah, I'm glad he remembered it. Actually, on the, speaking of the the, be, the, um, the Beatlemania thing, there's reference to that in your, your book, isn't there? Didn't you hang out afterwards or something with, with, McCartney. The, with the guys after that yeah. show? Didn't they no, all go no, back no, to no, I'll tell you what happened. They, they, were sharing my, they were sharing my dressing room. I'd had to stay on stage. There was no exit off the stage. It was mad, right. it was, it was mad full. There were 2,000 people outside the ballroom in the street. And they weren't going home, you know. It was the most amazing night. It definitely was the birth of Beatlemania. Right. It had been trickling. Now it was really massive. Yeah, it exploded, you know? yeah. And uh, we went... Uh, we, close the night down, you know, told people to get out of there and there's all these bodies in the corridor backstage with the Red Cross trying to get these girls to come round with smelling salts. <laughs> some of them were feigning, some of them were feigning having fainted because yes, they were got nearer the Lords and Masters. You know? mm. So we're in the dressing room and the, uh, McCartney introduces Lennon who'd been in the toilet with a girl. He came out of the toilet and mm. Paul McCartney introduced John Lennon <laughs> to a, a mucker of his dad's. He, he used to know his dad years ago, whatever, I don't know if it was in the army or what and he said and he's invited us to his house right and lennon says have you got any cheese sarnies cheese sandwiches yeah and he said oh we'll rustle something up for you yeah so on the night the beatles went to number one they went to a little house in oldham right with paul mccartney's dad they woke the kids up years later i got an, uh, 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 a a Facebook message yeah. from the daughter of this guy okay. who was woken up with another couple of her siblings. Yeah. And they were the first people to see the Beatles in that kind of environment. They would never, ever be able to be that social after this point. You no. Know? And Just... I, I said, did you get, did your mum make them uh, cheese sarnies? She said, no, she cut up a piece of roast beef for them and made roast beef sandwiches. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that I, would, I wasn't with them. I didn't go. Okay. All right. All right. So um, oh, good. from the Beatles, how do we... How do we get towards the crystals? Because I know that that was a, a tune that was uh, that was yeah. something to do with the period just before I, yeah. this that you wanted I jumped to play. way ahead, haven't I, with the Bristol story, really. I should have stayed in Oldham because you are going to want to know uh, on this blog uh, what we were playing as, as the years fl flew by. Mm. And I recognise this as one of the great floor fillers. Mm. It was also the arrival of Phil Spector, yes. who uh, younger people will not know, but Google him. He's in prison. The Wall of Sound, we all know him. Yeah, Ronettes yeah. and all yeah. that stuff. He, he, he created this incredible sound in the studio. And his entry was through a group called the Teddy Bears. Um, I think To Know You Is To Love You was, yeah. was their hit. That was Phil's 
first solo hit. But then he started producing. He preferred producing, and uh, he created this group called The Crystals, Mm. three beautiful black girls. Mm. And uh, Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich, famous songwriters, uh, wrote this song with Phil Spector himself. And whenever you put this on, it was one of the all-time great floor fillers in that period, and it was... The do run run trailblazers tony prince production from uh, Mr. Spectre. It still stands up today, doesn't it? Absolutely goes up next to anything. But that was a, so that was a floor filler and we are with um, a gentleman who really almost coined that term or that concept because uh, we're with Tony Prince who was one of the very first, very first people in this country to ever feel the unadulterated joy that you get from seeing a thousand pairs of hands go up in front of you yeah. because of a tune that you played. Yeah. If that had just never <laughs> and, happened and, and, before you. That had and, never happened. And the thrill of hearing those tracks for the very first time. That happened throughout my life, you know, whatever, you, all the big hits, you know, even Sergeant Pepper's album, we DJs were so lucky that we could hear them first. And then... You know you you got a track you love, and you can't wait to play it to your mate who loves yeah. music like you. Well, it was like that on the radio. You just couldn't wait to be the first DJ to quick, play something to quick, the audience. Quick question. So you didn't have any... You would, Did you speak between every single record? Yeah, I'm afraid so. Yeah. I brought, I brought that to an end later in my life, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I knew that was wrong. I knew that was wrong, but that was what was expected of you. Yes. You know, but more of that later. I mean, there you had the dancing type of atmosphere with the crystals to do Ron Ron, and then the Beatles were about to invade the dance party, and people danced to Beatle records, mm. you know. And the, the, the quite strange thing was even the Beatles... If they'd never heard it before and you were the first to play it in the ballroom, it wouldn't fill the floor until they'd heard it two or three times. People were strange like that, you know, even the best dance records, the the Supremes, the Motown records and that. If they didn't know it, you couldn't encourage them on the floor. But that's been a, a thread through commercial sort of club culture for many years that idea that sometimes people will be like it's shit play something we know yes but then but that re- <laughs> by that same record you know three weeks later is, hear is number one exactly. and they love it but yeah. it's the same record but the fact that they're not familiar with it makes sometimes makes people think like not fast you know yeah but you see as the ballrooms and the clubs they start calling them clubs pretty soon now. Right. As they became more established, so the the desire to have more dance music in those venues mm. grew. Mm. And that's where Motown, Stax, Atlantic Records mm. uh, built their uh, catalogs. You know, mm. they, were, they, they weren't just great soul records. They were great dance records as yeah. well, you know. Mm. So it was a really good time to be around. Yeah. Um, so I, I went to this um, TV show called Disagogo mm. um, with a young lady. And they had a camera break. This show was rather like Ready, Steady, Go. It was a live show yes. with, with groups all around the place. Yeah. And they were, it was built like a cavern, like the cavern in Liverpool with mm-hmm. arches. Mm-hmm. And you'd go down one arch and you have the small faces. You'd go down another arch and there'd be Paul Simon. Mm. And you'd go down another one and there'd be the, 
the Yardbirds, mm. and there were all the wow. bands, all the bands who were around in that period yeah, yeah, yeah. came to Disagogo because there was so few TV opportunities for them, you know. And I, I became uh, one of the co-presenters of the show and stayed with it for about a year and a half. And I also started recommending to the producer, as I had done to the manager in the Oldham Top Rank, which bands and artists to book onto the TV show. Mm. And then one day I went to him and I got my cap in my hand and I said, listen, this is not a great record, but it's all right. We'll get away with it. But we want to see this guy. I keep reading about him in the NME, the New Musical Express. He's a pirate DJ. You've heard of those pirate ships that are coming to Radio Caroline? He's one of those Caroline good guys. What's he called? He said, I said, he's called Tony Blackburn. (laughs) (laughs) And he had this record out called Don't Get Off That Train. So he did. He got off the train in Bristol, came to our show, and that's how I met Tony. And I, what a link. Yeah. And I, I um, found out who I should contact at Radio Caroline if ever I wanted to join yeah. the Pirates. And indeed, a couple of months later, because Ready, Steady, Go was starting on uh, on a London channel, and it was going to wipe out uh, Disagogo because they had much more power and audience. Mm. So the producer said, we're closing down in a few weeks. So mm. I went to London to meet the Caroline people. And normally... Normally, they were just impressed. They don't get DJs who are coming from television. No. (laughs) They get DJs on radio who go to television. Yes. So they were impressed, and I got the job. Mm. And I started on Caroline South with Tony Blackburn Mm. and people like the Emperor Roscoe. Mm. DLT, and uh, and this is on a on a ship that's just moored in the yeah sea. Right. (laughs) We've got to explain this because this is a historic blog, and people need to know what happened. What happened was, as I've explained, we were very, very uh, starved of pop music on media. Um, There was this Radio Luxembourg at night with lots of static. The signal wasn't great. It Mm. was on AM Mm. frequency. Mm. Uh, BBC were only playing maybe half a dozen records a day. Mm. So this guy called Ronan O'Reilly, a lovely Irish guy, He's managing a singer called Georgie Fame. Mm-hmm. He's a very good white uh, blues and soul singer. And he's got this record out. I think it was Shop Around, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, he went in to see the boss of Radio Luxembourg to see if he could get it played on the station at night. And Jeffrey Everett, the boss, said to Rona, he said, we don't play records. All our shows on Radio Luxembourg are sponsored by the record companies. So we've got the EMI show, the Decker show. CBS show. We don't right. have shows where the DJ can play records. Okay. okay, there's a little bit of that late at night, maybe one in the morning, but nothing on the prime time slots. Mm. So Ronan, in his frustration, he's leaving the office and he turns to Jeffrey Everett. He says, well, there's only one thing I can do then, isn't there? And Everett says, what's that? I'll have to start my own radio station. He said it in an Irish accent, but I'm not <laughs> going to do that. <laughs> so as it happened, Ronan's dad had a shipyard over in Greenor, Southern Ireland. Mm. So he went to see his dad. Next thing you know, he's gone to Holland and he's bought this boat. It's a Dutch ferry. And he brings it over to his dad's shipyard. And within a few weeks, the mast has gone from a standard size to 180 foot. (laughs) (laughs) And it's got a transmitter at the top. And you've got yourself a radio ship. He then brings it out to sea. He puts it down off the south coast of England uh, near Felixstowe. 
Three miles outside the legal fishing limits, so he's in international waters. Perfect. Nobody can touch him. Yeah. Then he loads it up with records and DJs. Of course, there weren't many English DJs who knew how to do radio. So a lot of in those early days, you had a lot of Canadians, Americans, Australians. Of course. And they were the guys who taught us the trade of being a DJ, how to be a DJ. Mm. So there was Caroline South. And then he got another ship and he ran that up to the Isle of Man and that became Caroline North. And then a company called Radio London brought a ship across the Atlantic and that became Radio London. And then you had 270 off Scarborough, Radio Scotland in the north of, 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 the, uh, of the British Isles. Mm. Uh, and then the, even the, uh, the, the Thames Estuary, where we've got forts, where we used to put guns to fight the, the, the Germans if mm. they dared to attack us. Yeah. <laughs> they were redundant now, but Screaming Lord Search, who people may have heard of, yeah, started yeah. a radio station there, which became Radio City. So it was all going mad, you know, I was mad. And then one of these pirate uh, fort owners got in a fracas with someone and got killed. And that was it then. The government moved quicker than they probably would have done to bring in the Marine Offences Act mm. to make it illegal. By this time, I'd been on Caroline North for a year and a half. And it was just the most wonderful time. The music that was coming through. We're talking 65, 66, 67. Mm. Um, and this is freedom. You were, you were getting... What, what, I'm interested to know, in those days... You, you know, you talk about all these, these radio stations mushrooming up, but, um, and you've got the establishment sort of on, on the mainland. Did you have the freedom to be able to play what you wanted, or was it a playlisted station? In the early days, it was pretty well freedom. And then uh, a, a kind of a playlist came up with a, a number of records on the A list, a number on the B, a number on the C. Uh, so the A get rotated more than the Bs, and the Bs get rotated more than the Cs. Same yeah. system as Radio uh, One yeah, has now. Yeah, Everyone but it was quite has, an yeah. extensive list. You know, it was very generous for the D. DJs. Uh, and to be quite honest, it was a pirate radio station. If we liked something, it wasn't on the playlist. We played it anyway, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and if we didn't like it, we wouldn't play it. And we had our own hot shots and picks to click and things mm. like that, which shows our favourite record each week. So it was great, yeah. And then the government moved. <laughs> Pick, did you say picks to click? Pick to click. Pick to pick click. To click. Yeah. Sounds, sounds well, like an, an Instagram precursor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it all is precursors. And you, you were oh, establishing... Hot shot, hot shot yeah. was another well, word. You were yeah. establishing the model that commercial radio and BBC Radio 1 and then Radio 2 followed yeah, later I, on. I think we'd been trying to emulate American jocks to a, to a yes. great degree, you know. So we, we did the British version of it. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. and and like right. you say, often with these these lovely uh, sultry uh, tones of of the these Americans who yeah, with deep voices and great American accents and whatever, and like you'd, you'd hear these great exactly. voices, these oh, you know we, Roscoe. And we, had a, those, we had Bob Stewart, Bill Mitchell. We had some really lovely Duncan Johnson, some really great low voice DJs. I was a royal regal rock and roller. <laughs> I'd created the Prince's Palace of Peachy Platters, where nothing else matters but the good times. Now here's Sergeant Peppers, Lonely Hearts Club Band, and all that kind of stuff, you know. So now, Tony, so um, musically in, the, in this period when you're when you're on the, the ship what was what what's the what's the tune that we can play that that might um, encapsulate that period or, or might sort of give us a musical window into that period okay well i think we should stay with um, dance music for the sake mm. of this blog mm. uh, and you couldn't get better in those days than the four tops uh, but i'd like to play a four tops track and then right after it i'd like to play another kind of uh, a rock and roll band who were very popular on the dance floor but first of all how about the four tops reach out and i'll be there amazing song Trailblazers, Tony Prince. Come on, man, get your job. Come on, girl. Reach out for me. Get your 
amazing. We're all dancing in here. That, that was the perfect record to play at that time. And actually, you could play that at any festival at the I end know. of your set and the place we, would absolutely we, kick off. So that you wanted to juxtapose another I record did. to this one. I did. It wasn't all that on the dance floor. You know, we, we were still playing the Rolling Stone Satisfaction and things like Jeff Beck, yeah. I, Hi-O Silver Lining. Yeah. Uh, here's a record you don't hear very often, which is why I want to play it mm. and show you, you know, how stunning even a white group could be to try and mm. make people dance. Mm. And in this case, it was Devil with a Blue Dress on and Good Golly Miss Molly, a medley, which is going to come much later in our lives when we call them mega mixes. But here's a guy and his band doing it live, and it's Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. Trailblazers, Tony Prince. Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. Devil, devil with a blue dress on slash good golly Miss Molly as chosen by the UK's, if not first, one of the very first superstar DJs in the UK. And that is a fascinating record because right there in the title, you've got two titles fused together. Yes. It's a live mashup, isn't it? Or yeah, is it, it's, it's a live mega mix. A it's, a, mega it's a live mix, mix yeah. a remix, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. This is something really culturally important because it, it foretells so But it so wasn't much. done by a DJ. It was done by by live musicians. Yeah, absolutely. You know? They did a segue yeah. in the yeah. middle of a song, yeah. turned it into another song. I think they'd call it a medley by then, although yeah. maybe a medley would be more than two tracks. You yeah. Know? But anyway, I, I just had to play that to, to your listeners to show them that we're not going to be always predictable about what we want to play on this show. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, you're, you're talking to two people who've made their, 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 their <laughs> yeah. lives revolve around new music. So, yeah. uh, you know, you're in, you're in friendly um, arms now. I mean, before we get into the 70s, which is a delicious time for music, you might just queue up, question mark the Mysterians, 96 Tears. But before mm. that, mm. let's just carry on my story after the Marine Offences Act took effect. Yes, yes. This bill that the government brought in to stop pirate radio, um, it actually said if you're a British subject, you can't work on those ships. If you're a British company, this is what really killed it. Mm. If you're a British company, you can't advertise with them. Mm. And that's what really uh, sunk the pirate period. Mm. It came to an end. So we all came ashore. Some went to the BBC, which had just formed its new Radio One. Uh, and the reason it formed Radio One, because they'd had a meeting with the government when it was decided this bill was coming in. And the BBC agreed they had to start something to counterbalance the loss of the pirates. Mm. And that Radio One was their effect. But for a while, it wasn't as great as it became later because they were infected by the Musicians' Union rule. Mm. Mm. Needle time restrictions. Yeah, so right. even when Tony Blackburn opened up that new station, followed by Jimmy Young, mm. uh, uh, followed by the Emperor Roscoe, followed by, you know, it was just a, it was a mess, right. really. Right. And they had live bands. They had Bob Miller and the Millermen doing Beatles, Can't Buy Me Love. You know, it was just, but that handed the gauntlet to Radio Luxembourg again, mm. which had actually grown in uh, income terms mm. uh, during the pirate period. Because what happened with Radio Luxembourg was, before the pirates, we only had the BBC, and there was no commercial radio in Britain. Mm. So the advertising agencies mm. were never approached, were never uh, coerced to mm. advertise mm. with radio. 
But after the pirates, they'd been advertising like crazy on the ships. Mm. Radio Luxembourg inherited that interest in radio. And so they were making more money than ever because of the pirates. So they too changed their act. When the pirates came to an end, Radio Luxembourg put a live team. I mentioned that they were all pre-recorded record company programs that went to the wall and they put a bunch of guys out in the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg, centre of Europe and the first team was myself Paul Burnett, Noel Edmonds and Kid Jensen Okay, What year year was was this? I went out there in April 68 Oh right, okay, in the 60s The uh, pirate period came to an end at the end of August 67 Okay, and then you... It carried on a little (laughs) while with Johnny Walker on Caroline South and Robbie Dale They didn't last very long Uh, So so you had Radio 1 starting and you had Luxie with its... With cool. its new team. With its new team. With a new playlist, you yeah. know, no control from the record companies. Okay. And we hadn't realised that the record companies were plugging all the records. And frankly, we didn't care. We were just happy to hear music, you yeah. know. But now right. it was getting serious. And Radio Luxembourg became one hell of a station. Yes. And it wasn't just Britain and the kids in Britain yes. who were starved of good radio. Mm. It was throughout Europe. Yes. They all had the same kind of problems. And mm. their radio stations was too serious. Right. Didn't play much music. And certainly they didn't understand American and British pop culture like we did because we were in the heart of it, you know. And and this is what you talk about in your book, isn't it? You Mm. talk about the way that... And it's actually a sort of double autobiography, isn't it? Unusually. There's there's your story and then there's a story of how you interacted and touched with... With uh, somebody... Jan. Yeah, who, who grew up in a part of Europe that, again, presumably didn't have exciting, you know, dynamic yeah. music on it, the... It was even worse where Jan lives. He, right. he was in Czechoslovakia. Yeah. Um, they tried to get out of the communist grip. Yeah. Uh, Dubček was the leader. Yeah. And he tried his damnedest, but then the Russians brought the tanks in. Yeah. Kids set themselves on fire in Wenceslas Square, Prague, and the whole thing was, like, doused. Yeah. They were back to square one. They were strict, devout communists. Yeah. And these kids, these teenagers, living mm. in that environment... Mm. Yeah, I mean, we thought we had it bad, but they had no record shops. They had no shops that sold tape recorders, record players. They couldn't afford it if they had. So so it was was Radio Luxembourg was almost like a beacon of of hope. It was a a rope ladder. Yes. These kids all listened. They weren't supposed to. If they got found out, they'd get shoved into prison. And their predecessors, their parents, if they listened during the Nazi invasion, if they got found listening to Western radio stations, they got executed. So it's a pretty dire place to live, you know. Heavy. Secret yeah. police were everywhere. Uh, you couldn't trust your neighbours. If you listen to Radio Luxembourg, you chose your friends carefully. Yeah. But they soon learned that every kid in class listened to Radio Luxembourg. And so when you were in, in Radio Luxembourg in this early era, were you aware of this, of how important you were you were becoming in people's lives? Well, we certainly learned quickly that we were very popular outside of Great Britain. We yeah. were all, you know, we had two days off a week and we'd spend those days getting on a plane and going doing gigs and earning money right. and entertaining people in live environments, in clubs. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, Scandinavia was great, you know, it had a lot of great clubs and it, in actual fact, the whole of Scandinavia employed British DJs in mm. those early days mm. because they wanted their club DJ to sound like a Radio Luxembourg DJ. So they didn't employ a Swedish DJ in a Swedish club or a Norwegian DJ in a Norwegian club. They all had to be British. So hold on, was was before you guys getting on aeroplanes and flying from Luxembourg to Oslo on one weekend and then the UK the next weekend, or, you know, and then 
in you know perhaps you were in Belgium or something was that the first time that there was like international gigging DJs going to different countries on a sort of weekly basis or whatever yeah because I can't imagine any other any other way that that sort of thing would have been born well, that was it, it, yeah that's it, where it, that fire started i mean <laughs> if, if you think about it the first discotheque was purported to be uh, in paris right that was a small club whereas everybody had vast venues right uh now those clubs were really burgeoning you yeah know, especially yeah. in places like scandinavia yeah and while they had these english-speaking djs from the mid-60s onwards yeah. there was a guy called alan Laurie who had a company called the idea right. the international disc jockey and entertainment agency and mm. he coined it okay. he brought all these english djs yeah. he was based in copenhagen and he used to spread those djs i think there was a point where he had a thousand djs working clubs of scandinavia right and he also then got in touch with us and uh, some clubs wanted to pay us a lot of silly money to come and entertain and yeah great. so we did a lot of that but no i didn't know the czechs were in trouble i didn't know yeah, the right. czechoslovakians because we didn't get any letters from them we got thousands of letters from european listeners but we didn't get any from the iron curtain countries mm, mm. And we just figured they can't understand us, they don't love us. Yeah, just whatever, but... <laughs> then one day I get a call from an agency in Prague. Yes. A government agency, I might add, which was run by a young guy who was a mad Radio Luxembourg fan. Mm. And it was just after the Russian invasion. Uh, things were sorting themselves out. It was going to get pretty serious soon. And he got me underneath the curtain before the communist acts came down right. once again. And I did three gigs. I did a place called Karlovy Vary, Bruno and Prague mm. and in Bruno um, I, I've got to tell you this was like Beatlemania I mean it was always great when we did clubs whether it was Blackpool or, or Paris you know throughout Europe it was great but in Czechoslovakia it was like the night the Beatles came to the top rank in Odom the night Please Please Me went to number one they were just uh, this was I, the uh, biggest you, story in that country that there yeah. was star DJs yeah, from Radio would, Luxembourg you, turning you, up you wouldn't get it covered in the newspaper no, or their radio local but it was radio. an enormous it was you know they just had one newspaper but it was an enormous story and all it, of that it was there it was word moment. of mouth really yeah, you know, right. they put a few posters around town okay. but interesting yeah. that it was you say it was a government uh, uh, somebody Agency. who worked for the government I asked him when I was you... writing my book Pavel he was called in Prague and I emailed him I said Pavel how did you manage to get me under that curtain he said it hadn't quite got too tight yeah it had been you know it had been great we'd had the Prague Spring yeah. which was a six month period during Dubček's move to make it Mm. more westernised, more mm. democratic. Mm. And then the Russians came. The play, play. I mean, there's a story in the book of Jan. He's now working on a railway. He started a disco in an old railway station. All the kids from the village trudge through the snow and he's got eight records in his collection and they keep having to play every one of them, besides <laughs> time time again with, uh, you know, uh, fruit wine, as he called it. I don't know whether fruit wine was alcoholic or not. And then one night in the billet with all the other soldiers, a phone call came through and it was the next railway station down. Somebody had been listening to the uh, national radio station and the Russians had invaded the planes were landing in Prague you know the tanks were on all the borders and all the Czechoslovakian army were on the other borders making sure the west didn't come in they weren't bothered about the east and it was the east that was coming in to get them mm. you know so w when I went back to see Jan 30 years later yeah for a reunion night on the very same night that I'd been there. We started chatting, him and the owner of the club and a couple of other people. Mm. And they started telling me what it was like being a teenager 
during that period mm. when Radio Luxembourg was an escape route to the West, mm. when they all learned English because they had to know what those bloody groups were singing about right. and those DJs were yelling about. Yeah. So... You know, I still meet people who learned English listening to Luxembourg who've got static in the voice. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, do they I, speak? Do they speak quite loudly? <laughs> I love you. And then, and, 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 then, and then the voice kind of goes <laughs> back again. Hey, hey, because yeah, that was ways. actually the one of the defining features of when you used to listen to. Well, when I yeah. used to listen to Radio Luxembourg as a kid, yeah. it would kind of come and go, wouldn't it? On the air, yeah. it would kind of drift in. And and we had that problem sometimes. Like when I was listening to you on the radio in the early eighties, um, and we move into this period, I'm sure shortly. Like you'd play like a great uh, underground club record because you did this show called the Disco Import Top Twenty. Yeah. And I'd be listening to it. Oh, this is great! I can't wait to hear what this record is. And you'd be going, Oh, that's all right. <laughs> you'd be like, <laughs> <laughs> that's because tumble, you're tumble, tumble, yeah. you're like in this. Bristol, you so that what? signal had to go right across yeah. the country to get to you. Yeah. And then you'd you know you'd have back announced it. You'd be on to the next record. We're like, I don't know what it was. Yeah, <laughs> oh, frustrating. Man. Yeah, uh, it was the same down the decades. Every every generation had that problem. Uh, you're talking about the jazz funk period, which yeah. I loved. You know, yeah, I did yeah. that show you mentioned from Groove Records. We'll talk about. Yeah, yeah we'll come to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, the reason that Radio Luxembourg signal had that style is technically to do with the sun. Right. And if there's a full moon, you've got more sun bouncing off the moon, sure. and that inhibits the uh, range of the signal it's a uh, it's a signal that gets thrown from these transmitters into the ionosphere and then right. it bounces down and it spreads around in a big circle so if you can imagine from luxembourg to the north of scotland yep. and then take a compass point and take it all the way around mm. there you've got the coverage there you've got the hundred million yes. listeners yes. tuned in in greater europe it's exactly. yeah. very exciting very exciting so uh, right we're into the we're kind of into the moving into the 70s i'm interested in like the the birth of disco, basically, that would would have been something that you would have kind of been aware of growing there, you know, sort of 75, 76, yep. 77. Very much so. What was, so that, I suppose that was, was that almost like a validation of, of the, some of the stuff that you'd been yeah, kind yeah. of fighting for? Because, you, yeah. you know, back years before, you were like, no, it's cool for a guy to play records and it's fine and it should be allowed to happen. And then come maybe 77, 8-ish, the whole world was just, that's what the whole world wanted to do, right? Was well, it, was it, it was, guy, it was, guys play records and it dance. Was, it was Saturday Night Fever. Right. You know, we, Bee Gees, John right. Travolta. That was the point that where... Was, that was when dance music really became came of age. Yes. Uh, became incredibly popular. Mm. And in fact, I was program director at that period. Right. I'd left Luxembourg having lived there for nine years and okay. I'd been made program director. Yeah. So I came over to London, working in London, mm. brought my family back, which mm. was a big relief, you know. Okay. Uh, and I had to keep the station, uh, you know, hot and yeah, you know, relevant popular. And, yeah. Radio One was starting to sound like a good radio station. Capital Radio had started, you know, yeah. in Piccadilly in Manchester. Yeah. We had the competitors coming at us, you know. Okay. And we still had that signal, you know, that sat static. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so I had to do something pretty dramatic. Right. We were losing audience. Okay. So I went to see my governor, Alan Keane, and I said, Alan, I'm going to suggest something now and I want you to back me. I want to make the whole station into a disco station. 
<laughs> I said, because okay. it's really in vogue now. Yeah, yeah. And he agreed to let me do it as a trial. And that would have been a brave, but a brave thing. Yeah, well, it was just... a last resort, really, for me. Right, I right. mean, you, we couldn't stop that drip on the audience. Yeah. And it wasn't the st- fa- station's fault. Yeah. The station was still great. Yeah. But the comparators... Comparison with signals yeah. made it very weak indeed. Okay. So, so you said, let's be bold with yeah. our music. So we started a top 30 disco show. We yeah. made Friday, Black Friday, yeah. all black music on Friday nights. Yeah. We had the top 20 import show yeah. with those great jazz funk tracks which yeah. we played. Uh, and a lot of dance music programs, but generally dance music programming. There was yeah. no rock anymore, apart from, I think... We had a rock show. Uh, I don't know whether it was Kid Jensen at that point. I think he'd left. Mm. But no, we gave it all up to dance music for a while. And then one day, Gallup Research came in to see us, as they did every time they did a survey. Yeah. it was. We did one every six months because okay. you had to go to the advertising industry with your figures. Probably nervous time. Nervous. I didn't sleep the night before knowing they were coming in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, anyway, he came in and we doubled our audience. Yeah, it was just an unbelievable success. Brilliant. Brilliant. Me and Alan went out and got very drunk that night. Great, great. Well, let's let's hear a a record from from that era. What would you? Well, you know, you want to get into the jazz funk later. I, I asked earlier on, can we keep one back? For the early 70s. It's not really a dance record, but again, it's one I want your listeners... Great, let's all play... It's Question Mark and the Mysterians, and it's 96 Tears. Trailblazers, Tony Prince. Too many teardrops for one heart to be crying. Too many teardrops for one heart to carry on. You're way on top now Since you left me You're always laughing We're down at me Want to hear more of the music? Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com Where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists Deezer Originals Trailblazers. <laughs> Lots of us know, especially those of us in the business of music, yeah. they, we, we know that riff, we know that record, we just don't know the name of it. But yeah. the man who does is Tony Prince, <laughs> one of know, the UK's first ever DJs. It's very much of the Doors, uh, yes. Jim Morrison kind of, uh, Procol Harum kind of feel to it. Absolutely, so, yeah. I, I, I slipped back into the Why 60s, not? really. Why there. not? Hope you but don't mind. Sling it in. It's, it's, yeah. free, it's a free-flowing uh, format here, so uh, you're, <laughs> yeah. you're very welcome. You're very welcome, indeed. Well, anyway, yeah. there we were. We doubled the audience. That, yes. did, that didn't last long, though, you know. Okay. I mean, um, it's probably a year we got away with it. Okay. Um, and then... Uh, were you, were you in, sort of dipping in and out of club culture, for, you know, much in that birth of disco yeah. sort of... Well, yeah. Yeah, okay. And uh, then I, what happened was I'd been with the station 16 years. Yeah. And I just got... Che- they'd sacked my boss, who was a great radio man. He was mm. the guy who was the programme director of Radio London, the pirate ship. Right. A real great radio man, mm. Alan. Mm. And uh, he'd uh, been given the elbow from the board. And I felt lost, you mm. know. Mm. Didn't like where they were going, the new hierarchy. We're looking at satellites. Mm. The, you know, I just wanted Radio Luxembourg to succeed. And mm. I t- they just wanted to bury it, you know. Right. Which eventually they did. Um, so I, I, I had a meeting with them and I said, listen, you've had... A, a loyal lad here yeah. for 16 years yeah. my family put 9 years into living in Europe yeah. uh, I've given you another 7 years 
I think you need to shake my hand with some money and I'm out of here, okay? But right. don't try and sack me. They try. They, they brought in this one, you know, three three sacking rule, right. where they send you three warnings. Okay, yeah. And, you know, three the first strikes one, and you're out. Type when thing. I knew I had to leave, well, the first one was as follows: I'd invented this radio program, which I think was the best radio program ever yeah. on a radio station called Where in the World. Okay. And we hid a great prize, really great prizes. Yeah. And nobody knew where we'd put it. It could be anywhere in the world. Okay. And uh, the listeners phoned in uh, every half hour or so, mm-hmm. and they could have a guess. And the DJ, if he answered yes to their question they could ask another question okay but the minute he said no to their guests they're yeah. off okay and then so the more you listen to the radio station the this more is you why, learned this is why it was a great idea yeah, right. they had to listen 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 where right? in more the world choose. i remember where in the world yeah <laughs> yeah anyway i called up to the, the uh, new governor's uh, office and um the warnings come through you've been given free advertising to harrods what you're where in the world I didn't advertise Harrods. Yes, you did. You hid the prize in Santa's sack up in the grotto of Harrods. <laughs> Can you believe that? Uh. Can you believe that? Can you now understand why I had to get out of that place? Yeah. We gotta get out of this place. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so yeah, you have to move on. But, yeah. but before you tell us what you did next, I actually brought brought something along here. I'm gonna reach off camera. Just because fun, I had a little Radio Luxembourg moment, so check it out. I just this is a an import twelve inch, and it's one of the first sort of imports. Sam, yeah, yeah, first kind of import twelve inches that I uh, uh, got in my hand. And the the way that I got this import twelve inch in my hand from nineteen eighty is I won it on a on a competition that you did no. on Radio Luxembourg Brilliant. when you did when you did the disco import, import show. show. And the the question you set was was um, we're looking for a new um, like a catchphrase. What would be a catchphrase for the station or for for my show or whatever you? And uh, there's a, um, a sort of a, 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 an American phrase called you know called on the one, being like it's on the one, it's on the money, it's cool, etc. So I wrote in, and everything was written in in those days. <laughs> so I wrote in, and I made up this. And I said, hey. It, you know, if it's on the one, it's on 208. <laughs> sent it in and uh, won the competition. And uh, you, uh, you you kindly sent me, uh, sent me a copy of KID. KID, it's Hupendi hot. Musici Wango on, uh, on a Sam import. So, it's hot, take it to the top. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, a little, just a little bit of personal history. That was what I was doing when I was 14, 13, 14 years old, listening to you. And uh, there we go. How brilliant. Nice, How right? brilliant. I actually meet so many DJs who used to listen religiously yeah. to that programme because, yeah. of course, it was the music we all wanted. It was it? so exciting. And for me, you see, like, just being involved, you know, dan- you're playing all this cutting-edge dance music and, and you know, you're 13, you're 14, you can't go- afford to go out and buy, you know, American import vinyl records or what have you. Um, so, so, yeah, the idea, wow, this came in the post, an yeah. American import. Thing. Fantastic. And um yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were saying the that um you got the chart from Groove. Yeah, Records. Groove Records. Uh, uh, and yeah. Groove Groove Productions logo is on here, which was kind of linked to the to the Groove Records thing. Yeah. And there's another there's another link there because Tim Palmer uh, and w- who was um, essentially sort of running Groove Records. Uh, his mother sat by the till. Jean. Yeah. Now Jean, yeah. this is a very interesting part of, of record store culture. So Jean um, was affectionately known to me and my my best mate Andy Smith as the Granny from Groove. Yeah. We called her, and we used to come up to to London on um, 
on the coach or whatever from Bristol and go around the record stores. And Jean must have been in her 70s, 60s, 70s. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, you know, but she knew everything about, like, the the most new cutting-edge rap records, uh, you know. She knew what she was selling. Oh, yeah. Yeah, So she was a deep, deep knowledge. Fantastic. But it was this person who was in their 60s or 70s. It was Tim Palmer's mum. And uh, and then, of course, it was Tim then who gave me – uh, the job at City Beat, out yes. of which XL Recordings Ba-bum. started, and the decks. It just I feel like I'm riffing a bit, but f- forgive me. And then the the Technics decks that used to live in Groove Records are now uh, in in my house. So, so, I, so I, you I, nicked brilliant. them. I, I know Tim, Tim Tim gave me them when uh, when Groove. Oh, yeah. well, he did when Groove Records <laughs> when Groove Records shut down. Are you listening, Tim? Yeah, he, he gave me the he gave me the decks. So there we go. It's all interlinked. Oh, fantastic. Well, we've now, uh, Nick has has beautifully uh, segued us from this, from we're going out of the 70s, where 1980 was when Mm. you got that record, right? So so let's leave the 70s behind. And with that, Tony's spectacular hair from that that period. He had the most spectacular mullet in those days, and you can see it on the cover of his book. (laughs) Um, And so we come into to uh, to the 1980s, and with uh, with Nick Hawkes brandishing this this treasured 12 inch, we, we now kind of leave seven inch culture and we're now in 12 inch culture mm-hmm. so so let's it now would be a great time to play the best not the but the best for many people but the the i think it was the highest selling 12 inch record mm. of all time and yeah, i think it, it still remains the so tell us about tony about your relationship with blue mondays uh, with blue with new orders blue monday well i mean i i had mixed mag at that time you know i mean it was just so incredibly different so so you'd yeah you'd exit from 208 you've jumped ahead here yeah eddie's fast- yeah way ahead I haven't told you how I got the idea for DMC yet oh okay well well, 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 should we spin it back then should we spin it back to then let's let's spin it back to yeah let's let's spin it back to you getting the idea for the DMCs because that is you know that is a really important part of our our cultural heritage it is yeah I mean it's a well known story amongst people you know who know DMC over the years Um, here I was playing all the dance music Uh, you know I did the top 20 imports myself and uh, I also employed DJs on the station. Mm. I uh, employed uh, Steve Wright and Mike Reed, for example, mm. Rob Jones and Timmy Mallet, who's a great mate okay. of mine. <laughs> Good God. Okay. Yeah, he didn't stay long, Timmy. Okay. He went to Piccadilly in Manchester and made a great career for himself. Um, but anyway, that be as it may, um, I used to get cassettes from DJs who mm. wanted a job on the station. Mm. And these cassettes had their voice on and their ideas and, mm. you know, the music. Mm. And I used to get, you know, hundreds in a month. Yes. Um, and one day I got a cassette and I played it in my office. And there's no voice. And I kept listening. I kept listening. I went for another track, another track. There's nobody talking on this. And I've got a nutter here. So I put the cassette on the corner of my desk and there it stayed for a few weeks. Mm. And then one night I'm having a little tidy up and I see the cassette. I thought, I'll have another listen to that. Maybe it's something on the other side or what. So I'll listen in the car going home. I'm driving down the M4 with the cassette playing, and God, I get it. He's segueing, he's mixing, he's mixing in tune, in beat. It's just from one track to another. It's seamless. It's bloody beautiful. I'm freaking <laughs> out going down the M4. Mm. I get home to Christine, my wife, and I go here and put the cassette player on, listen to this. Mm. So mm. I was really taken by it, you know, that idea of mixing. Um, and so I called the kid who'd uh, done it. Uh, Alan Coulthard, he was called, and he came from Wales. 
And I said, I want you to come down to London once a week and do yeah. a mix for me. So yeah. he did. He came down and he started doing these regular mixes. Yes. The next thing you know, I start getting letters from DJs in clubs. How can we get these without the static in them? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, Well, these were great, weren't they? That I mean, I remember them. And they'd yeah. have a theme. Typically, yeah. it'd be like a solar yeah. mix. Or that, a, came, that came later. Was that later? Originally, you know, and then Simon Harris, Les Adams, Paul Decay. Yeah. People came out of the woodwork who could mix. Yeah. And they started sending me mixes and we started playing more and more. But then I got the idea, you know, when, mm. the, when the DJs started writing to me, mm. I went to see a mate of mine who was the boss of CBS and the chairman of the BPI. Yeah. And I told him, I said, I've got an idea here for the record industry. I can promote your dance records for nothing. Mm. I can give you free promotion. All I need is your permission to let us mix some of the music. Yes. So we had a meeting at the BPI, the committee meeting, all the heads of all the different major labels, and Christine and I sat there and preached the gospel of mixing and told them how if they will let the DJs buy these mixes, which we will create creatively, you know, if if you will let us do that, we will send them a cassette of mixes every month mm-hmm. and a cassette of free promo copies. Okay. But I will only put a three-minute sample of your record on. Yes. You at the moment are sending all the DJs DJs in the clubs of this country, a 12-inch record. Mm -hmm. You've lost the money. You're maintaining a dance department Mm -hmm. and you're losing money every time you send them a Mm 12-inch. If I send them a cassette with tracks they like Mm -hmm. and it's a three-minute sample, they'll go out and buy the 12-inch. And in actual fact, I've got to tell you, because of this mixing thing that Mm. we're starting here, Mm. they might even buy two tracks, two Mm -hmm. Mm 12-inches, because they want to mix from one into the other. The B-dub side might come in and so on. And they bought it and I got a license, the first in the world. There've been all these under-the-counter under mm. uh, cassettes that uh, yeah. Moody Record Shops were selling. Yeah. We put an end to all that. We mm. made it legal to to sell mixes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, that was it. Um, I, I, I suppose also a precursor was uh, Stars on Forty Five. Yeah, there was know, a couple of hits. Was, well, yeah. and there were the American twelve-inch yeah. sort of medley odds, odds and sods. I think one medley was kind of things. Yeah. yeah. So there were a few precursors to the thing, and uh, but the whole thing, uh, we uh, we had to now get. A, there were no internet then, so you no. couldn't you couldn't uh, Google all the DJs of the country. No, um, I begged and stole mailing lists from my mates at record companies. You yeah. know, but that wasn't easy either because yeah. they were very protective of their little uh, yeah. list of DJs and yeah. clubs. So I went down to Slough rec- uh, to Slough Library, and I, I copied all the yellow pages of disc addresses, uh, mobile DJs, everything. And we spent Christmas in my house packing away sample cassettes of DMC. Mm. Uh, And then on January the 2nd, the DJs of the Great British Isles received this freebie. Which Uh, year? year? This was uh, 83. Right. And so so at that time, what did DMC stand for? Was it Disco Mixing Club? It was. And then the show on the air was called Disco Mix Club. You're listening to the Disco Mix Club, you know. Mm, mm. That was part of my deal. You know, they gave me a wedge of money to leave the station. Mm. And the deal was I'd stay with them for a year pre-recording the Disco Mix club show Great. that was my deal yes uh, so that was very healthy for the club to get promotion because of course as you know as i explained luxembourg playing this music plugging disco mix club come on djs join the club here's the address p.o box 89 so yeah. yeah. the european djs were listening as yeah, well you had a massive so, <laughs> so pool of uh, within within months uh, we moved from cassette to records yeah that was quite controversial 
Morgan Khan uh, went on the front page of Music Week saying, I was a cancer for the industry. I would do more harm than good. That was the guy who ran the Street Sounds. Street Beat or whatever street it was called. Sounds street Sounds compilation albums yeah. like right. Electro yeah. 1 and 2. I was very which disappointed. Which non-mixed compilations. So yes. you were just... You were just in, yeah, yeah, actually, some of them were mixed. Oh, were they? But yeah, but yeah. I guess it was. he was very much uh, all about selling. That wasn't mixed until after we started it. Though. Ah, there you yeah, go. No, it was very much about He did selling. compilations. Compilations. Yeah. Selling. Oh, oh, compilations of those top 20 imports that you heard me playing yeah, at Luxembourg yeah. Morgan capitalised on that by yeah. licensing them in you yes, see yes 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 uh, so I was very disappointed he got a meeting together with all the record promotion guys uh, in his office and he said to them you've really got to boycott this right and they all ignored him because mm. they knew how powerful DMC had become mm-hmm. we had every DJ in our hands you know supporting the club yes and of course the other power tool we had we didn't just send them the cassettes we sent them a magazine which we called Mix Mag yes and that grew into the Bible for club culture. Yes. Uh, it was like a tidal wave mix mag. Yes. Uh, more than the mixing, really. It just uh, established the, uh, you know, the superstar DJs, the Oakenfolds, the Sashas, you it know, did. all the big names, the big name acts, New yeah. Order, you know, yeah. Prodigy. Yeah. They yeah. All got, yeah. If you got on the cover of Mix Mag, you'd arrived, you know. Yes, definitely. But, but in the early days, we were putting on the cover the people who were in the mix. Yeah. So we started with Shalimar. Okay. which was a, a mix and then we did uh, Cool and the Gang yeah. uh, and then we did uh, I think we did Michael Jackson so we started in February March April we did the Michael Jackson mega mix mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which which really landed us you know it's the greatest mix ever done by a DJ mm. Alan did this mm. uh, and it was so good I mean everybody in the country wanted the Michael Jackson mega mix mm. and the other thing we were giving to DJs in clubs and the club owners for the first time in history we were giving them something their customers couldn't buy yeah. they could only hear and dance to it if they came to that club yes so it was a great tool for the DJ industry yeah. and the club industry and then Ronnie Fisher from uh, Epic Records who allowed me to do this mix uh, called me into London to his Epic Records office he said Tony I'm in big trouble here right behind him he's got he must have had about 300 Michael Jackson mega mixes we'd given him permission to do a promo copy because mm-hmm. it was so popular mm-hmm. so he could send it out to different DJs who maybe weren't members of DMC yeah. I looked on that as a promotion and he'd sure. been so kind to let us do it I said mm-hmm. yeah go on you can do it mm-hmm. uh, we didn't charge him in other words mm-hmm. and uh, he said I'm in real trouble he said I've got to bin all these I've got to burn every one of them what? he said yep Michael Jackson didn't get asked permission and I'm in big trouble. I should have gone to Michael before I did this. He said, so I've got to burn them all. What? Wow, he was that much in control. That's interesting. Yeah, he was. I don't know if it was him in control or his manager or the record label in America. Yeah. Maybe. But the word came back to Ronnie Fisher, the promotion manager for yeah. Epic Records, that, you know, he should have asked Michael's permission. Then it would have been okay. Mm. But because he hasn't, he has to get rid of them all. Mm. I've still got four in my record library. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've probably got one did, somewhere. So did, did he burn them all? He or did. He, he did, he, yeah. he did, except he the, the four His you job got. was online. He yeah, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. Wow. He, he was being watched. You know, he had to take them somewhere where they would officially report that they'd been destroyed mm-hmm. what well, a shame what a shame well, we're, we're at 1983 now can I play New Order <laughs> I thought you were going to play Michael Jackson Megamix for a minute yeah let's play New Order Trailblazers Tony Prince
can't really listen to this record now without uh, referring to and bigging up one of our former guests on uh, on Trailblazers, Mr. Mike Pickering, who of course was uh, resident um, at the the main club that broke this this, this incredible record in yeah. the Hacienda. Yeah. So this is what's happening in the clubs, but. Of course, we're in we're in promo land now, really. You know, with you starting DMC and 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 inventing the the, the culture of, of, Mixing, of mixology, yes, exactly, uh, which had never been a thing. And so, yeah. how did that then? You, and you've explained that the, the, the popularized massively with that with that Michael Jackson one. Yeah, and we started becoming international, and we started getting international mixes. Ben Liebrand from Holland, and. Uh, Oh, God, we had uh, Bruce Forrest from America, Mike Hitman Wilson from Chicago. So it wasn't just uh, British guys, um, but the British guys, we had a little team, and I kind of had the obligation to look after their careers. Uh, and I was finding it increasingly difficult to get record companies to get behind them because they weren't artists, you know. At the end of the day, it was the early days mm. for DJs to be recognized as artists and musicians. Mm. Uh, so I started our own label, the DMC record label, mm. and put it out through Arista. Mm. And the first release, we had a guy called uh, Sani X, mm. a wonderful Swedish-Greek kid who come to the first DMC DJ convention, which we'd held at the Hippodrome in London. Mm. And he'd, he'd begged me to let him do 10 minutes on stage and I said no you're not programmed and he kept begging me beseeching me I said go on then so what he did uh, which blew everyone away he did a live mix uh, of Human League Don't You Want Me Baby Okay, and it's what he did with it live which just blew everyone away when right. he finished he got this massive a thousand DJs all went away talking about Sani X doing mm. this live mix and mm. showing them what they could do live mm. um, so I brought Sani over from Sweden, he came mm -hmm. to live with Christine and I. Uh, I changed. I built a, a, a studio where there was a stable, and uh, next to the studio, a little bedroom for him. And uh, he spent every hour God gave him working in there. I went in one morning, and he'd got like about fifty foot of tape with splicing tape every two inches. And I said, "What's that?" Oh, I said, it's an Elvis sound effect that I thought would work if I looped it for two minutes. And this 50-foot of tape <laughs> lasted two minutes, and it didn't work. So it was a complete waste of a night's work. But oh, wow. that's his kind of ingenuity, what he was trying experimenting. So these these uh, mixes were generally like proper razor blade tape? Some of them were, yeah, to, make, to make them perfect. They yeah. did actually use uh, editing facilities. Yeah. But they were the early editing facilities. There was yeah. no digital editing. No, no this is a block. Like this. this is quarter-inch tape yeah. and, a, and an aluminium uh, block, and, and some, a, literally some sticky tape and a razor blade. That's what I learned on. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, radio DJs knew it well because we used to edit our interviews, didn't we? Yeah. Like you'll be editing this one. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe but, we should, in honor, uh, we should. <laughs> any editing should be done with razor blade. <laughs> <blades. laughs> I wouldn't bother yeah, if yeah, I were you. Try, try cutting a wav, mate. That's yeah. not going to work. <laughs> anyway, I told Arista my first release is going to be a remix of Tina Charles' "I Love to Love" yeah. by Sunny X. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, they, they'd given me a little advance. It wasn't a lot of money. Okay. I was going to release with them, I think, something like eight records a year. Right. And we had a budget of maybe a grand a record. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, we, we were getting the label started, and mm. my producers were going to be able to do productions in the public sector. Great. So out came this record, and what, what was magic about it was what he did with her voice, mm. which was one of our problems in the early days of mixing and remixing. Mm. When we started remixing, I mean, Adamant freaked out. He wouldn't let us go anywhere near his 
voice. You know, uh, Sonny X, this guy who produces first mix later in his career with us, he did a remix for Elton John, uh, Act of War, a mini uh, Millie Jackson. Do mm-hmm. you remember Millie Jackson and Elton John, Act mm-hmm. of War? Mm-hmm. He'd done this remix, and I had, I had to get it up to their office in London to Rocket Records. Mm. And I heard a bit of it before I set off. I thought, that's fine, give it me. Off I went and drove up, played it to them, <laughs> played Sunny X's mix and the uh, producer, I think it was Eric Hall, uh, the guy who'd commissioned us to do it, said, it's great, but where's Elton's voice? <laughs> Gone. I said, it wasn't on, was point. it? It was only Millie Jackson, wasn't it? So they knocked me back and I went back to Sunny. I said, why didn't you include Elton John? It was his record. It was his record label. Yeah. He said, I didn't like his voice. I only liked Millie Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> this was Sunny X. The power of the but, DJ and the producer. Yeah, yeah, but what he did for Tina Charles was he gave rebirth to her mm. 60s career with this mm. very first hit for DMC. Trailblazers, Tony Prince. Absolutely fascinating insight into into you know dance music production culture and remix culture and mashup culture the whole thing. Yeah, so that was using a commercial uh, riff with a sampler and putting it over a new bed of music, and it just it was just magic. It caught Arista unawares, you know, it entered the charts. I can't remember where it came in, something like number forty or something like that, and they yeah. weren't expecting it, mm. and they hadn't pressed enough records to follow it through, mm. so it dropped out the charts for me. I was furious. Mm. But that's the politics of record labels and we won't get into that. Yeah. But but, but equally at that time, yeah, the, the sample-based records were popping off right, left and centre, weren't they? So it was a, an interesting yeah. time as as the record industry kind of got its head round the possibilities of sample-based records, often without clearance, any kind of clearance yeah. Protocol in place, but then it, you know, bomb the bass, beat this, or, yeah. or whatever comes through and turns into a smash. And it does have other people's music in it, but it's not cleared. That was that was a big problem in DMC's early days. You know, these guys would use samples over some music, mixing and mashing it with other people's copyrights. Yeah, Um, and you know, we needed a lot of help from the record labels. You know, we we got some very irate people coming at us. You know, yeah. But the the great thing about this was, you know, Mix Mag was preaching the gospel about mixing, and the superstar DJs were starting to evolve. Mm. Uh, You know why? Because they were good at mixing live mm, and mm. they went to a lot of trouble to do little things in the middle of a track mm-hmm. and in, a, in a live respect mm. and we started the World DJ Championships yes um, which we put on at the Royal Albert Hall three times mm. um, we had to stop doing it there because the record companies decided because they saw our success uh, they would put the Brits on there instead of at the Grosvenor House Hotel mm-hmm. and they told their promotion departments to not support DMC's annual event ah, so I couldn't I fill the Royal Albert Hall we'd been bringing Run DMC 
AMC, Public Enemy, yeah. James Brown, yeah. people like that, Janet Jackson. Yes. They'd all been coming over to get the DMC awards, you yes. know, which made a very colourful evening with all the mixing that was yeah, going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, right. But the World Championships developed from a singles competition to a, a team competition. So, so hold on, for, for people who don't know, what is this contest well mm. it's a dj it's, yeah it's it's got two it's it got started with two turntables or two techniques or whatever two techniques turntables yep. six minutes six minutes to prove that you're the best dj in the world judges on stage yeah the audience aren't judging professional judges on stage yep. and, and off they do go your thing yeah and he came in from all over the world you and this know. is this is absolutely fascinating because we we now <laughs> segue from the from a, a disco essentially a disco mixing thing yes, yes. and then suddenly you got invaded by by hip hop and by turntablism and That's by right. these guys in in baseball caps that could beat juggle and yep. could do you weren't just segueing from brilliantly from one record to another yep. or or using quarter inch tape like uh, like Sonny was doing yeah um, you were these guys were isolating beats and breaks and then switching between them and spinning back and doing these incredible tricks. Absolutely. I mean, tricks became very unpopular with the musician aficionados. Mm. They didn't like people doing tricks. I try to explain. When a guy spins round his body and comes back on the turntable with his hands, he's making it more difficult for himself. That's what a trick is. He's showing you what a smart ass he is. Absolutely. Let him, let him do it. I mean, David yes. from Germany who won twice, he did the hip-hop trick of all time. He got on top of a turntable with his hand spread down and his body came parallel with the decks and he spun all the way round and on the deck underneath the deck he was spinning on he pressed the start button and it, it was cut, cut in a groove and, it, and the DJ went round and the DJ went round and, <laughs> and he just went round and round and I said to him how many turntables did you go through to, before they all broke he said only three <laughs> so what I want to know is because there's a there's an urban myth around the DMC it's when, when it's come up and when I when, when Zinc was here okay. we were talking about Cutmaster Swift and it's in my brain because I'm DJing with Cutmaster Swift very soon at okay. Scroobius Pips night. So apparently, and I did, I've been to many DMCs, but I wasn't at this one. Apparently, Cutmaster Swift did a mix with his bell end. That's what I heard. He actually got his knob out and did a mix. With no, it. you're getting confused with Bad Boy Bill in Chicago. No, Swifty would never do that. He's too too. Well, I'm uh, going to ask him next you week. You can ask him. I, I don't think he. I don't think he knows if he's got a bell end. I don't think he knows what a bell end is. <laughs> well, I'm glad we but, got that cleared up. Yeah, no, no. Bad boy Bill did it with a, a dildo and his girlfriend's breast. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, and I was right. there when he did it. And and here's here's an amazing link that we're, that we're talking about. Bad boy Bill's girlfriend. <laughs> so I went to a strip club in Toronto once. It's all in, coming out now. In the, in in the 90s, and uh, this girl was, uh, we, it was a positive tour date, and uh, there was this girl doing a, you know, dance, whatever, and she's like, oh, well, how come you guys are in, you know, town? Oh, we're DJing over here, whatever. Oh, you're my boyfriend's in the, like, the music industry. And, and I was like, oh, who's that? Oh, bad boy Bill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did you say amazing. Tony Prince told us about your boobs? I didn't, I didn't, oh, wow. but I wonder if it was the same... Who knows? Who knows? Well, Must maybe not. We, we'd have to. We'd have to. Maybe we need to get Bad Boy Bill on a. Well, we're, we're going to have to get edition of Trailblazers to get to the bottom of this. We'll have to get Tony's uh, Tony's you know tune choice for the to, to sum up this period of the DMCs. But I want to share with you my favourite DMC moment when and I've seen you know I saw Craze win it three times. Mm, magic. But, but but my absolute favourite. I've always been about the underdog. I think me and Nick have always I I, in it. a sense love all it. of yeah, us definitely. always been about the underdog. Yeah. And and for me, my favourite moment. 
moment and and and, and, and it's it's so me like this this, this record it, it was it was dexter it was in when you were in new york and yeah. when this big ballroom in new york and it was dexter who who i just started as dj of the avalanches that right. you know lots of radio yeah. listeners in 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 the uk know uh, as as their brilliant mm. dj and, mm. uh, and cut up meister and he had on on one turntable he had um, the 12 inch of Killing in the Name by Rage Against the Machine and on the right turntable he just had a tone just, okay. just a solid tone yeah. and then he he basically did this brilliant thing where he, he, he cut up this record and then he, yeah. he did he, he, he did he echoed like the, for example the the Change the speed. He changed the speed. The amazing Tom Morello guitar solo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He would echo that with the tone by okay, yeah, yeah, moving yeah. the pitch. He'd actually yeah. play so the he, tune. Yeah, he would yeah. play the tune on the tone. Yeah. And he was echoing all of these incredible things that Tom Morello was doing, but with this tone, okay. just by manipulating the yeah. turntable. So yeah. this is before the days of, you know, we all, you know, take a CDJ for granted now, but he was doing it with a Technics 1210 yes, turntable. It was one of the most amazing things. And it was tune perfect, pitch perfect, beat perfect, absolutely. I thought he should have won that night. Actually, and then, actually, the crowd—he—he he was the crowd's favorite that night. But of course, who won the that night? It was the first time was the craze won time. it, and because the, all the the, tech, the real technician judges who were real anoraks. Was that the year was, we did it in New York? The world. That's final. right. Yes, it was yeah. in New York. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was absolutely incredible, and that was he start, started a, a love affair with the DMCs. You know that Amazing. that night. So, um, so Tony, what have more to the point? What have you chosen as as well. as the moment? Well, I've got to say, um, I've been at uh, the side of the winner throughout the event for 30 years now. I've never missed a mix, even, you know, in the early days at all the heats around the country, sometimes go to uh, national finals abroad. I've never missed anything, never missed a beat. Uh, and it was always my dream that these DJs would take it one step further and become groups. And so we started the team championships. And my dream actually came true with a, a bunch of guys, four guys from France, who actually went on to win four times the team championships at DMC. And actually, they augmented themselves with a live band. And they've been, became, I don't know whether they are now, but they were up until recently, the biggest musical attraction throughout France. And they're called C2C. And this set of theirs made me cry because you know I'm an old rocker. Yeah. I love the blues, you know, Howling Wolf and things like that. I used to sing, da, 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 if you're looking for trouble, da, 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 da. He came to write. Anyway, they pulled this riff out. And the six minute set, four guys, eight turntables, and it was musical. You could actually hear the whole thing, like sometimes scratching and that gets a bit jumbled unless you're watching it, if you just listen to it. Yeah. But listen to this. Trailblazers, Tony Prince. So this is C2C, like uh, Tony Prince said, one of the biggest draws in France. Uh, four-man team, four times DMC World Team Champions. Is that a record? Is that, is that a record that still stands to this day? 
I think uh, we've got a Japanese team who've done it five times now. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, you know, the, uh, it's nice to listen to that, but if you watch it as well, it's on all our mixes are on YouTube. Uh, we've got a TV channel at dmcworld.com or dmcworld.tv. Yeah. All the mixes are there. And they're all on YouTube. Just Google C2C and you'll see all their four performances. And that one is be- it's, it's better watching than just listening yeah. because you see what they're all doing, how busy they all are, yeah. uh, how coordinated and choreographed they are. Incredible. Um, Incredible. Well, you know, that, that to me is... Uh, job done as far as DJs are concerned yeah. they become a group I think that's wonderful yes um, now I've, I've got to just wind up your interview for you now by saying I pulled out of the editor of Mixmag when mm. I knew it needed young blood mm. I knew that mm. I was old school and I knew that there were people with opinions mm. who needed to now be on the front page of our magazine so mm. I brought Dave Seaman in to be editor he actually yeah. was working in the studio yes uh, <clears throat> he'd won a competition to come to New York with us that's how we fe- met him and fell in love with him and he became our editor yeah. and then eventually he started messing down in the studio and he met Steve Anderson who became yes. a, two, a duo, the yeah. Brothers in Rhythm, yes. who went on to produce Kylie Minogue's first hit when she left Stock Aiken Waterman. Con- That's right. Confide in me. That's right. And her first album, of course. So that was David sorted. He was off into the wilderness of DJ Live. Yep. And I brought in David Davis, Dom Phillips, yep. a real professional bunch of guys to write up this magazine and make it something worthwhile. Mm. And they certainly did. Uh, they took it to 160,000 sales a month. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So that's so the height of Mix Mag's power was probably around that sort of was it mid to late nineties kind yeah. of zone where like was the 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 super club thing was that? Yeah, I mean, about ninety eight was when I sold yeah. it to EMAP. Was that in kind of in? I mean, that was probably invented that phrase, super club thing, cream, oh, yeah. ministry, and it, Sasha is God, and all that. Yeah, stuff, that was a, you know. a, a big, a, yeah. a significant I mean, front cover, wasn't yeah, it? He had Paul Oakenfold on the cover on a balcony with lights all around him, working at the other side of the balcony. I took the photograph. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's how budget-minded we were back then, you know. So times changed, and the magazine grew and became the voice of the DJ, and yeah. I think it catapulted not just the DJ. But the the club brands, you know, it the creams and the gate crasher and all, all this. Them. It just really, you know, it was it was very important. So at this point, I was running Positiva when I know uh, you were uh, when yeah. uh, when Mixmag was, you know, smashing it. And yes, very important. You know, so you had in the in the radio world, it was all about you know was Pete Tong going to play your record on a Friday night on Radio One? And well, then, don't forget Pete Tong played our bus chart every week for many years. Yes, that's true. That came of out of the, the DMC Mag. bus chart. Yeah, 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 we provided until he wanted to do his own thing because he'd make more money. <laughs> of course. <laughs> the essential solution. <laughs> yeah, but he's no Great fault, are you? <laughs> yeah. So we've had, a, we've had a lot of fun. We've, we've, we've trailblazed, and that's yeah, why I'm happy to be so. on this show. And, and also, <laughs> with the, we shouldn't uh, overlook your, your compilation series activity. Back so to mine. Back to mine. Now, that's a definitive... Well, brand. you know, if we were talking all night, you know, we could play some of those artists we chose yeah. for that series, you know. Yeah. I mean, you, you had Faithless, which was one of our biggest sellers, yeah. Underworld, yeah. Uh, fantastic bands. Yeah. And the idea of... Groove to, Armada, I remember that. Groove Armada, yeah. Where does it end? There were about 20 came out in total. Yeah. And what they were, because if people don't know it, uh, you go and ask your mum and dad if they got a Back to Mind cassette on the yeah. shelf. Yeah. It was uh, uh, these artists choosing music they'd play 
say to you if you went back to their apartment yeah, after right. a gig? You went back to their apartment. Yeah. And what would you stick on? Their favourite music of that moment. Yes. And it was a compulsive series. And the NME called it the greatest compilation series ever. Amazing. I was really proud of that. Yes, rightly so. Mm. Rightly so it's been a good life. And yeah. uh, thank you for having me and talking to me. And uh, I, I'm glad you're letting me finish the way I'm finishing now. Because <laughs> it's, it's well, the way well, we started. Well, we, yeah. we, we always ask this one question, don't this we? This is it. Yeah, with, every, with everybody, we just, uh, it, it's, it's really a way to get some, a, very, a, a record that is very personally very special to them and that means a lot to them. And we ask you that if, if aliens were building a transgalactic superhighway <laughs> and, and in order to facilitate that had yeah. to uh, explode Earth, uh, um, and what, what is the record that you would play to them in order to, to, to save them, the to planet, placate them, yeah, yeah to, just, them feel, to, to just make them think, actually, to make them feel these, cool. these 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 idiotic carbon-based life forms that are ruining their planet are actually all right. Um, let's let's not uh, let's not destroy them. Okay. What was the what's the tune that would do that? Well, this tune, this mix, mm. uh, it wasn't done by a DJ. It was done by some producers mm. for the Cirque du Soleil. Yes. And uh, this was on an album called Viva Elvis. Mm. Well, we started this show. And thank you so much for having me on it mm. with the King. Yes, we did. And yeah. uh, I'd like to end with this incredible mix uh, done for the Cirque du Soleil. Um, it's on Viva Elvis' album, and we've got it here now, and we'll play as much as it as the boys can stomach. It's <laughs> once again Elvis Presley. Trailblazers, Tony Prince. Originals Trailblazers Thanks for your ears. We hope you enjoyed Trailblazers. Uh, we'd love your feedback. So if you want to get in touch with either of us, you can reach out to me via Twitter at EddieTM. That's E-double-D-Y-T-M. Or you can reach out to myself, Nick Hawks, N-I-C-K-H-A-L-K-E-S, on uh, Twitter or Facebook. And remember, we've just given you a taste of the, the great music that uh, shaped the journey of our special guest today. Uh, if you want to hear music in full, head over to Deezer.com and you you can find special Trailblazers playlists that Eddie and I put together and some special stuff from our guests. And bear in mind that if you enjoyed this stuff on Trailblazers, you'll definitely enjoy the curated playlists that happen on Deezer. Just download the app for free and search for Trailblazers or head to the dance section. Where you'll find a playlist for just about any genre you can think of in dance. Trailblazers. Thanks so much to the first ever superstar DJ, Tony Prince, for joining us. And next time, DJ Zinc. Deezer. Deezer. Originals.